You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Okay, welcome everybody. This is the uh, the Strong Towns Ask Me Anything podcast. Jeanette Sadek Khan filled the hallway, and we have since emptied it <laughs> in a good way. In a good right? way. So <laughs> we'll see how many people you know show up for the Ask Me Anything. But we have Jared here, who you know said hello. I don't know if he has a question or not. But those of you who are on Slack. I'm standing across the table from at Jared. So the actual at Jared is right here in front of me and has a question or something you want to ask. Go for it, Jared. So when you were working on fixing water infrastructure for small towns in in Minnesota, you had that realization that, gosh, this isn't working out. Did you have any idea that that would lead to something where somebody's sitting at a dinner and says, Chuck... I find you so inspiring. No, gosh, no. <laughs> I, I actually thought it would lead to me like losing my job and winding up working at Walmart. <laughs> I did not fit in at all. There's a city south of me called Little Falls. They had a ethanol plant that was coming in, and this would have been like 97, somewhere in that range. And in order to get this ethanol plant, we had to run like $6 million worth of water and sewer out to this thing way, way, like two and a half miles out of town. And these were huge pipes. I mean, the biggest pipes that I'd ever put in the ground up to that point, like 18-inch sewer lines. I mean, these were like high-capacity pipes. And I was in the meeting at City Hall when uh, they were there with the bond people, the people who were going to, you know, oh, yeah, you can afford to borrow this money. And they, they went through it with them. And, I mean, I'm, at this point, I'm 23 years old. So I'm, I'm the youngest person in the room by 20 years easily, maybe 30 years. And I'm listening to this and the guy said, yeah, you know, the, the ethanol plant will pay you X amount a month, like 30,000 a month. And that 30,000 a month will then go to pay your bond payment. And you'll have to kick in another 10,000 a month or some like number like that. But, you know, if you get connections in between, you should be able to make that up with, you know, blah, 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 blah. I'm a very young person in a room full of people who have been doing this a long time. And the first thing that comes to my mind is ethanol plant. Doesn't that seem kind of risky? <laughs> like, <laughs> like maybe borrowing $6 million on the future of an ethanol plant is not like the smartest thing to do. You know, we got paid to design it and build it. So I was actually out there doing the inspection of this system as it's being built. And we're pulling up these old pipes. And there was a six-inch water main, which in water main terms is a small pipe. And they pull it out of the ground, and it's so old and encrusted that there's about an inch, inch and a half of diameter left in it. It's like all the calcium that's built up on the inside. And we just, you know, sliced it off and connected to it. <laughs> thinking, how does this work? You go from one and a half inch to 18 inch out to this plant that's going to, you know. And it, the worst thing then is we went along, and then we connected like five homes. And I'm thinking... If this thing all goes bad, 
which a lot of ethanol plants did. This one has, has gone through bankruptcy at least once, I think twice. What happens here? The thought in my mind at the time was, this seems really messed up, but someone must know something that I don't. And that over time turned into, this is really messed up. Why isn't anyone talking about this? And then it ultimately became to, you know, this is really messed up. Here's, here's now what I think about it. And that's kind of those, the strong towns evolution, right? So, uh, so Chuck, you started your blog because to, to sort of shout out in the world and say, does this, does this not make sense to anybody else? So yeah, what was that? What was the first time you got feedback where somebody else was like, Oh yeah, I, I totally get that. When was that first one for you when somebody kind of validated your point of view? It was funny because in the very early days, it was just local people. Like I was writing and then the only people reading it were people who knew me and had gotten it like from somebody else. And the feedback was all just, it was just painful. It was just, it was mean. It was cruel. It was bloody. It was, you know, you'll never work in this town again. <laughs> it was horror. It was really bad. I had one city council member. I never even wrote about their city. Like, you know, I worked in this city and I never wrote about any city that I worked in or that my wife covered as a news reporter. But I, so I would talk about projects in other places. And he, he just said at a council meeting once I was at, he said, I, I will never vote for any contract of yours if you're going to, you know, espouse these ideas. And the funny thing is, is like in the early days, it was not like radical, radical stuff. It was like, okay, let's take uh, the $8 million project we're doing divided by the 500 people that live in this town and then reveal that this is an absurd number that makes no sense. Why are we doing this? Isn't there a better way? We have a commenter, Ruben. He was the first one that made me feel personally like maybe I was okay. And what, what it was is I wrote this series about the city of, of Baxter. I live in Brainerd. Right next door is the city of Baxter. Brainerd is the old railroad town. Baxter is the suburban highway strip with the frontage roads. I wrote this like breakdown because people have been pushing back like, okay, you know, explain. And, and I, I went into real depth like here's the problem with essentially the pure suburban development pattern. Here's the problem with the cul-de-sac. Here's the problem with the frontage road. Here's why this doesn't make any financial sense. The pushback that I kept getting was, okay, but what then? But what, okay, Mr. Smarty Pants, what would you do differently? And I wrote well, this I piece. You, I got some of that feedback here at CNU, people saying, you know, I like strong towns, but I, I feel like I need a manual or instructions that tell me what the next thing to do is. <laughs> like, well, you know, I'm an engineer. I need to be told what to do. And I just, I, I kind I of always, nod politely and say, yes, I've, I've heard this feedback before. I always <laughs> tell people, you know what you need to do? You need to think. Think. That's what you need to do. You need to think. Because Baxter is a very different city than Brainerd. They're a very different city than Little Falls. There is no design manual. I sat down and I tried to answer this question for Baxter. And I literally laid out like a map of Baxter. Here's, here's Baxter. Here's the map. And I said, here's how I would approach this. And I divided the cities into areas. I created, I said, here's where you would put nodes. Here's how you would connect it with a, a transit system. Here's how you would start developing in this neighborhood. Here's the things you would put in place. And I wrote in one post, probably like a 5,000 word post. This was a huge undertaking with all kinds of images and stuff. And I was thinking this through as I was writing. And when I got to the end and scheduled it to publish, I thought, this is going to be it. 
this is going to be it. Like I'm going to put this out and I'm going to lose everybody who's reading this is going to be done with me because they're going to say, this is so crazy and insane that it's, it's nonsensical. I published it and I remember I got up the next day and I rode into work and Ruben had written a two word comment. It was like, you know, amen or, you know, this is exactly right. Something like short that was just like affirmation for me that I had done something worthy. And that really was for me, like personally, a turning point in when I started to become somewhat confident that maybe I wasn't nuts. You know, maybe I wasn't crazy. (laughs) So here's, here's me like fishing for questions. I feel like we did this two years ago and there was, we had to cut it off because it was like two hours of blog content. Go ahead, Nate. There's a lot of movement and push right now for data-driven cities and smart cities. Yeah. Does Strong Towns have an opinion or any policy that they're looking to do to address or be part of the smart city movement? And Uh, I have a follow-up question. Oh, okay. My reaction to the data-driven city is really to, to go back to this piece I wrote about the difference between Singapore and Italy. (laughs) I was trying to make the argument that in a very stereotypical way, that's unfair to people in Italy and unfair to people in Singapore. If I had to choose between the two, I would not choose the, the data model. I would choose the kind of Nassim Taleb organic, messy, chaotic model. And the the reason is because I, I think the data model gives us in these complex systems a degree of confidence that we we shouldn't have. So let me say it this way. I think the more data, the better. Let's collect it. Let's analyze it. Let's look at it. But let's not then do the step that we're, we're kind of conditioned to do, which is to say, based on this data, here's what things will be like 50 years from now. Because we have no clue at all. And I think that's what big data tends to do. You see it in the financial markets. You see it in city government. You see it in transportation kind of most acutely. And so when people start talking about smart cities, to me, smart is a lot of sensors gathering little data, a a huge volume, but aggregating small things and then projecting like the next step, not data being used to make an algorithm that would get us 30 years from now. Does that make sense? No, that's a great response. Thanks, Chuck. What's your follow up then? It's a, it's a scenario that I'm going to describe, and then I would like you to respond to it. Okay. <laughs> You've worked all day. Yeah. You've been on your feet. You're exhausted. You get yeah, back. Y- yes, I am. <laughs> you get back to your hotel room, and the only thing that you're thinking is, I could really use an ice-cold Mountain Dew Kickstart. Yeah. You go into your room. You open the door. You lift up the top of the ice bucket. <laughs> And I know, you know I know where this is going, and, <laughs> and inside, you know this. <laughs> inside is some not my kickstart. <laughs> How do you respond? First of all, I would be crushed right 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 away. I would, I my heart would be rent asunder because I you know I was anticipating a, a nice you know cool and and then this like primal urge to destroy someone's <laughs> you know store of alcohol. 
would, would, would come upon me and I, I may like throw something at someone. But, you know, then uh, I would calm down after a period of weeks to months and uh, would forgive said person who made this mistake of, of, you know, putting their alcohol in my Mountain Dew store and, and would probably become friends with them over time because I'm, I'm sure they would be a kind person. <laughs> All, right. All right. Thank you, Chuck. <laughs> it's funny because uh, our good friend Matt Steele from Minnesota, who I miss. I wish he was here. Congratulations on him having a, a, a little boy. I'm happy for him. I wish he was here. And if he was here, I would share my hotel room with him. But he would not get anywhere near my ice pack. <laughs> uh, so, oh, John, Kristen. All right, let's do this. One of our debaters for tonight. Are you ready for the debate? Well, yeah. I am. I, I think folks are kind of surprised that I'm debating against the statement. I am not. I am not. And I, I am not because I know you and you're a, a smart person and I, I think I know where you're going with it. <laughs> yeah. So I'm if excited to see it. you attention to my tweets over the last, say, month and a half. I have. Then, yeah, you know where I'm going. So, so. The, the, the issue that we're debating is the proposition is something along the lines of gentrification is the most critical urban social issue today. And you're arguing against that proposition. Because of how it's worded. Yeah. There's a lot of loaded language there, and I want to really talk to people about the fact that we're using gentrification, a word, to mean a lot of things that it doesn't really mean. I, I can't wait for the conversation. So we're going to have fun tonight. Yes, yes. Is this a two-time or three-time debater? Two. Okay. I was a judge in Buffalo. That's what it was. And last year you were a debater, mm -hmm. and then now we're... And I'm, I'm bringing my A-game tonight. All right. I can't wait. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Everybody brings their A-game to debate well, night. Well, I mean, last year was just interesting. I think we didn't think about the fact that we were actually... I mean, we taped last year, right? Uh, we did. We audio... But we weren't live. No, we weren't live streaming. Tonight, we're going to be live streaming, so the stakes are, the stakes are high. Yeah. Well, this I is guess, going out to the world forever. I do have a legitimate question. Go for it. So when when did you get to a point that you realized, okay, I have this unique urbanist voice or whatever you consider the word that you want to use for yeah, what you do? Yeah. When did you get to that point in your own thinking? When did you um, feel pretty comfortable saying, hey, I'm Strong Towns, this is who I am? It's funny because I did get to that point at some point, but it was it was far later than what people think. Um, oh. <laughs> I remember, I remember being in Madison and, you know, going to the CNU in Madison and showing up and all of a sudden all these people were looking at me and talking, you know, and I'm like, what, what do I have something like, did, did I, you know, is there something in my hair? Do I, is there something wrong? And all these people were looking at me and I thought, what, what is going on here? And Victor Dover came up to me, Victor Dover, like, why would this guy talk to me? He comes up to me and he said, what you're doing is really important please keep doing it. Mm -hmm. And I thought, whoa, wait a sec. Hey, how does this guy know anything about me? He was the <laughs> president of CNU at the time. I'm like, how, how does he know anything about me? B, why is he saying this to me? It kind of like blew my mind a little bit. It really was part of being out on the road and finding that uh, as I took a, a message that really to me felt very central Minnesota, Mm -hmm. And then brought that to California and Pennsylvania and Florida and Texas 
and people reacted the same. <laughs> and, 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 you know, I went to South Beach, uh, Miami. I went to, you know, the urban neighborhoods of St. Louis and I'm having conversations with people and I'm getting very similar feedback and reaction. And over time, I, I, I think the apprehension that I had of, okay, there's something here that you're wrong about. There's something here that you're kind of crazy. It's like the people kind of bolstered my confidence. And, and now I kind of feel like I owe our members, I owe the, the people who support this movement to, to actually be outspoken on it. I actually feel like I, like if I, if I don't bring my A game, I'm not doing what they expect from me. Right? But I feel like you can kind of stand in a room at this point. Now I'm coming to that realization myself. Yeah. I'm starting to see that this conference and in yeah. other places. And I'm yeah. like, I mean, people who can't see him, he's not wearing his badge right now. And <laughs> no, I'm not. I, and, I, but I know people know exactly who you are. Yeah. I don't think Mitch has on his badge and people know exactly who he is. Right. We were at lunch together. And right. No, it is. And it's, it's good for me to go home and have my kids think like I'm not a big deal in any way, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and my wife will say, sometimes I come home and I'm kind of like still bringing stuff with me and I'm still kind of in a mood. And she'll say, you, you need to be home and be grounded. And I think that that's like a really good thing. This is overwhelming in a way because people here are extra kind and generous to me. And I, I know that's, you know, a reflection of me to a degree, but it's a bigger reflection of the message that we put together and the people like yourself, like Michelle, uh, you know, like John, Nate, who have all mm -hmm. contributed to what we're doing, Jared and Slack, the conversation. <laughs> it's become like bigger, mm -hmm. far bigger than me now. And I realize that I'm in a way the personification of some of that, but also I'm very happy that when Rachel writes something, it's now a big deal mm -hmm. when, you know, some one of our contributors writes something good. It will get higher readership than something I wrote. That makes me I, really I happy. I just really admired, at least in this last year, watching you staff up yeah. on this side and staff up in the way that you've staffed up. I'm just being a media person and being in this space in the media world. It's like, OK, I can tell that he's pushing things out there. I see five posts a day on Twitter and Facebook. I see other yeah. people tweeting. Slack is just blowing up like crazy. It is, it is. But I also feel like it's because you've said, okay, this is who I am. This is what I am. This is more than me banging yeah. on my computer and yeah. banging my head on the computer in my room wherever I write. And I just wanted to hear it from you. Like, what did it, when did it click for you? Because it's starting to click for me. And yeah. It's, Thank you. Well, and, and I think you probably feel this a little bit too. Like you put something out there mm -hmm. and people react to it. That's like phase one is you put stuff out there and, and no, nothing happens. Yeah. And yeah. phase two is you put stuff out there and people react to it. And, and that's really, really uh, affirming. And it's really, um, you know, challenging. I, I like it. But then you put something out there and people react to it. And then other people react to them. And then the conversation goes in different mm -hmm. ways mm -hmm. and people take ownership of it beyond you. Mm -hmm. So like I will post something and some person will come in from nowhere and like flame something and, <laughs> and everybody jumps on. I'm like, you don't do that. You don't know, you know, look at this post back there and read, you know, come informed. And it's, it, you know, we have a polite group of commenters, an intelligent, polite group. Oh, yeah. yeah. But to see that, other people own this now. Mm -hmm. uh, other people own this. Like, 
my board, we had a, you know, one of our staff meetings, we were talking like, where are we the most, you know, where are we fragile as an organization? And the number one place where we're fragile is me. If I get hit by a bus tomorrow, yeah. what happens to strong towns? Yeah. And a year ago, it's over. It's done. Mm-hmm. Today, we're not quite out of that orbit yet. We haven't quite reached escape velocity. But another year of where we're, what we're doing, oh, yeah. and yeah. we will be at that. We'll be that escape velocity because we're building, in a sense, personalities and, and, mm-hmm. and characters and storylines yeah. that are far beyond me. Yeah, I definitely, I would say just this year, I've definitely seen strong towns, not just being you. I'm seeing strong towns take stands on things, strong towns yeah. share things, yeah. pushing members out there. And I've had people talk to me about taking what I'm doing and getting more people under the fold. So Well, and you need to. I mean, I really, the, the, the stuff that you're doing is so important and the voice that you bring to the conversation is so important. This is Kristen Jeffers. Why yes, don't you just <laughs> talk a little bit about what you are doing? I think we jumped into this um, a little bit earlier. This is Kristen Jeffers, the Black Urbanist. I'm at Black Urbanist on Instagram and Twitter. And for six years, I've been doing a blog to just tell the story of me. Yeah. I am African-American. I am born in the U.S. South. I consider myself an urbanist and have always been interested in why cities do what they do. And train as a communicator, coming back into the planning and development on the back end, I do have some professional and you know academic training in that. But it got to a point where I'm reading all these blogs, I'm reading all these Twitter feeds. This was back in, say, 2008, 2009. And I'm not seeing enough women involved. I'm not seeing enough African-Americans involved. I'm not seeing enough people of different social classes. I don't represent, I'm a straight cis female, so I can't represent that sector. But again, we're not seeing everybody. We're just seeing white males who tend to be engineers or planners and who tend to be framed in a certain way. I'm like, okay, well, what, how do we come at this angle from just this body? Like, if I said something in this frame, why would I do that? I mean, I had had a blog that was um, labeled as just, it was a blog spot. It was different things, different reflections. And I was like, you know what? I need to be blatant. I'm calling myself the Black Urbanist. I Googled it. And it was available on all the platforms I wanted it on. And yeah. so... So it's mine. Yeah. Fast forward six years later, people start to pay attention to it. Gris runs an article about, you know, my thoughts, you know, why aren't there you know, black urbanists, CNU Next Gen reaches out to me, that brings me into the CNU fold, and right. over time I've been just going around to the different planning and development conferences and just writing my story. I put out a book last year working on a second edition, so... Yeah, I've really thoroughly enjoyed the move to Kansas City, mm-hmm. because Kansas City, you know, I've had I've had this history with Kansas City that has not been great. No, and, and mine is... I will say, and I, I'm gonna. This will probably be the first public place I will say this, at least on the air. I'm actually hanging up my shingle this year. Are you really? Way yeah. to go! It's Way gotten to, go. to the point where I love what we do, and I love our organization, and I feel like our movement needs me to be me. Do it. And that's fantastic. You know, the project work has set set itself in place, and you know, there's just so many opportunities. And again, the world needs me to be me. Yeah, hundred percent. Totally. So when you have the uh, the business card, let me know. Oh, I, yeah. And we'll let you know. We'll yeah, we'll chat about it. That would be fantastic. Kansas City needs your kind of love. It really does. Yeah. I do have this mixed relationship with Kansas City, 
but it's one where I I, I like the place. Yeah. I do. Oh, and yeah, I, and yeah. I want to like it more. Yeah. And I, I certainly like the people there. I mean, yeah. I, I, these are Midwestern people. Yeah, they're, yeah. They're, they're my they're kind your, of people. Yeah, like, yeah. I, I should be, like, very close with them. It thrills me to see you there and your conversation there because I think if, if any place is going to benefit from what you bring to the table, it's a place like Kansas City. It, huge. And I think they're ready for it, too. They are. Like, I get a lot. I do get a lot of support from Kansas Cityans. Yeah. You know, people are happy that I'm there. You know, I'm definitely in the conversations. I'm already on committees and everything. Yeah, yeah. But I do worry about just the ability and the readiness for lasting change. Right. We are, I think we're one of the few metro areas that's still building into sprawl. And at scale. Oh, I mean, yeah. at crazy Huge scale. scale right? We got one residential that's going to be 70,000 residential single family. Oh. We have a company that's expanding on a mall site that's going to go. I mean, they're building vertical, right. but there's no transit to it. No, it's And it's then Johnson really, County, Kansas, which yeah. essentially is Kansas City, Missouri on the business front, the Kansas, Missouri line, that battle. And, you yep. know, the streetcar is doing great things. It's beautiful. It works. It could expand out. And then on the flip side, you know, my current office is constantly battling with our city officials over various things. And it's taken away from the conversation. Not all of them. Right. But some. And people feel justified on either side. But when you look from the outside in, I've never been a fan of hugely combative cities with advocacy groups. I feel like. You know, if there is a reasonable objection, yes. But if it's bare bones, basics, like when we lost bronze status, paperwork not being filed. Yeah, those are things that are frustrating. Yeah. Now, are you and I going to have to be frenemies when it comes to baseball? Have you gotten into the, the baseball oh, scene? Oh, yes. So yes, you got sucked yes, into that. Yes, right. yes. I... <laughs> I mean, my, my aunt's a Detroiter, so I've been to Comerica. I love, I love going to ballparks. I would love to go to Target Field. Oh, you need to get there. Yeah, it's, yeah. it is, it is truly. I am. Um, I still have my Nats apparel, so yeah. when I'm on the East Coast, I'm wearing my Nats stuff. But okay, but that's National League, so you can. So you got a National League team, and now you've got an American League team. But I, that's another thing. There's a there's an urban planning perspective in the Royals win. I yeah. saw, I saw literally a hundred thousand people that day. Yeah, I believe that. A, 800,000 people came to the middle of Kansas City. They may have not all been in the picture that everybody has seen nationally. Right. But these people tried to get there. Like, we literally just saw our offices are so close at Bike Walk Casey. They were so close to downtown that people were just literally coming and coming yeah. down our street for hours on end because so many of them had to park well into the 50s and 60s street numbers just to go downtown to, you know, your 20s and 30s street numbers. Right, right. And again, everybody, there was no suburban versus urban. There was no black versus white. There was everybody united under royal blue. Yeah, And yeah. so I can't help but not cheer for the royals. I do wish Cueto had stayed, but I understand <laughs> why he wants to be in San Francisco because San Francisco is San Francisco is a great, you know, great city and a great team. Mm -hmm. I had a bet with Kevin Klinkenberg going oh, into this season, yeah. and you know, the the in, in retrospect, it was really obscene. But you know, the the Twins had some hope. Mm -hmm. We 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 actually had signs of life. I mean, yeah. we were above five hundred last yeah. year after four years of just abysmal. Nothing, yeah. We were. And it looked like, you know, with our young players, we were pulling out of it. And we're, 
we are on track right now to have the worst record ever in Major League Baseball. Oh no! So it it is. You know, so <laughs> I told Kevin, I said, I'm just going to pay out. But we have a mid season. <laughs> we have a mid season and an end of season bet. And I said, I'm just going to pay out both of them. <laughs> you know, Jonathan, you have a question or anything? All right. Here's uh, Jonathan Coppage from the American Conservative. Go for it, man. Chuck, yeah. when are you moving to Detroit? <laughs> um, that has been my reaction as I've walked around everywhere. That's been the reaction of everyone I've seen as well. So when are you moving to Detroit? Has What's been, your plan? When is Chuck moving or when are you moving? Like, when is everyone here when is moving everyone here? to Detroit? Um, when th- are you particular moving? Yeah, there'd be something romantic about that, wouldn't it? I would like that. I, I have to tell you, and I, I wasn't really prepared to make a big announcement. It's not. It's it's a personal thing, but um, you probably don't know this story. So let me tell you this, because you don't you don't know this story at all. And I'll give you this from the ground up. When my wife and I got married, right after undergrad school, we were twenty two, and we had dated through junior high and high school and college, and we got married, and we bought a lot, a five acre lot in the woods, halfway between where our, where we worked. It was the cheapest lot we could find. She grew up on a lake lot, and I grew up on a farm. So five acres in the woods was kind of a compromise. We couldn't afford a lake. We didn't want a farm. But it was like rural living the way we had, you know, dead-end cul-de-sac in the middle of the woods. They built a golf course around us the next year. And so our little lot, like, tripled in value. And it was, it was, it was like a very fortuitous kind of lucky thing to start married life with. And, you know, we've enjoyed jogging on the golf course and, uh, you know, just living in this very nice place for a long time. Beginning in like the mid 2000s, it started to conflict with what I thought we should be doing. And it, it started to not make sense to me. It was around like the Strong Towns time. And like the earliest case study that I ever did with Strong Towns was my own road. And I showed my wife, I'm like, we pay for the maintenance of this road uh, $30 a year. And that's not even enough to plow the road once, let alone every time it snows, let alone fix the road. And we have like one of the densest developments in this whole city. So <laughs> this is, this doesn't make any sense. And that was kind of the, the start of my, you know, analysis of different projects. In 2008, my youngest, uh, was starting school and we decided we were going to move to the city where my wife worked and be close to her work and schools so for family reasons. And we put the house up for sale at the downward trend. In nine months, we had two people look at it, and they were both realtors. So not even, no one looked at our house, let alone made an offer. And we kind of sucked it up and put the kids in school and made do with kind of the way we, we were going about it. And years later, we got to the point where we were going to buy, now we were going to move to, to Brainerd into town. And we found a house we really liked. We were kind of negotiating with the property owners. We had come to like semblance of an agreement. And this huge storm hit, knocked down 80 trees. Our five acres were decimated, four trees on the house, storm damage, you know, $30,000 plus worth of damage to the house. And so we've been like fixing it up for the last year. My wife and I just made an offer that was accepted two weeks ago on a house in Brainerd. And we are moving into town. We are going to live in a gridded, <laughs> a gridded street in a historic neighborhood, the original plat of Brainerd. 
a block and a half from the park in the middle of town, six blocks from the, the main street downtown, three quarters of a mile from my kid's school. We're going from five acres and golf course and nothing to urban life. I can't say that there have not been tears, not by me, but by everyone else in my family. <laughs> it was a really hard thing. My wife got the papers and then to sign and then like 10 days later still hadn't signed them yet and wasn't sure she could. But we, we closed on the house and we're making the move. July 1st, we close. And so this is a huge life change. We're, we're literally going from walk score zero, <laughs> zero, like it doesn't get lower than that. Walk score zero to walk score like 80 something. So this is going to be a radical change. So where are you moving to Detroit? If I went home and told my wife, we're moving to Detroit, do you, do you, do you, that would be the one thing that would put us over the edge <laughs> in terms of like the stability of our marriage. Yeah, I would say that you are walking the walk, though. So you probably get off the hook for moving to Detroit. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I'm, uh, the, the, the radical move that I'm making is, you know, for me radical. If someone moved from, say, Minneapolis to Detroit, that would be from going from seven to, to nine. I'm going from zero to six, right? Yes. So I'm making a big leap. I'm not quite, you know, there uh, yet, but baby steps. All right. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else um, have a go ahead? You have a question? Grab that mic and you can hold it right. Here you go. Just grab that. Okay. Mark Nixon. Mark Nixon from Traverse City, from Michigan. From Traverse City. Did we, did we meet last year when I was in uh, Traverse City? Oh, what we were there for. Wasn't, no, I wasn't, I was in, I was in Lansing, right? Lansing. <laughs> have you been to I'm Traverse? I'm sorry. I have been to Traverse City, but I think it was three years ago, three or okay. four years ago. It was a very quick, like, in and out. What are your thoughts on uh, historic preservation? That's a really good question. Historic preservation, like, my gut reaction is that we tear way too much stuff down. And so I understand the kind of reflexive reaction that says, wait, 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 stop. We need to preserve things because we're so adept at tearing them down. My hope is that we will get to a point where, say you go to Italy. Italy does not have historic preservation the way we do, right? Their conversation there is way different than ours. Because in Italy, they don't just go tear things down. But they don't also put them under glass. You might put the Colosseum under glass, but even the Colosseum, they're rebuilding the... Pl they, the last time I was there, they rebuilt the platform and, you know, are making, like, incremental improvements to restore it. Uh, often, uh, historic preservation in this country becomes a debate between put it under glass and, and never touch it or tear it down and make it a parking lot. If you made me choose between those two, I'm always going to choose historic preservation. But taking a long view, I would hope that over time, we would come to value the buildings that we have and the things we can do with them and would find a way to essentially be flexible enough about existing buildings where we could love them and make them better and make them like improved versions of, of what's there now. And that that would be part of our culture and heritage. And the impulse to tear things down would go away. And I think if we did that, the notion of historic preservation, I think, would, would maybe just kind of die of its own uselessness, in a sense. 
if, Does that make uh, sense? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, we've got an interesting uh, uh, historic preservation uh, project in Traverse City that did get uh, 15 years of uh, uh, historic tax credit. That's fantastic. And uh, so if you get back, you should visit it. Okay. And uh, the developer did employ a new urbanist approach, and the building had enough scale, and so that it's actually uh, succeeded to the point where it actually deserves a little bit of national recognition. Fantastic. As a successful use of a public subsidy to uh, kind of uh, improve the economy of Traverse City. What was the what was the building? Oh, it was uh, Building 50 is how it's referred to locally, but okay. it was a state hospital built in 1883. Oh, okay. It was originally called the Northern Michigan Asylum. Yep. And it's now uh, I've seen marketed. some of those. They're fantastic buildings. Yeah. Well, it was an interesting guy. He's a uh, Mason from Detroit, Ray Minervini and his family, okay. uh, jumped in with both feet and and really uh, saved uh, a 400,000-foot uh, building yeah. with 13 spires on it, uh, designed by the architect Gordon Lloyd, yeah. who actually still has a number of uh, buildings in Detroit still standing because he, he built a lot of churches or designed a lot of churches. Oh, okay. But my other question for you is... Yeah, go ahead. Town, does uh, Minnesota have township government? Oh, yeah. We have townships. Okay. So you know some of the <laughs> oh, politics yeah. of yeah. land use policy. And, exactly. Uh, the, the, the townships, I mean, Michigan is the is on the same grid, six by six grid as Minnesota. Yeah, yeah. And the township was like Thomas Jefferson's form of government, right? We all get together at the town hall and learn Greek and, uh, you know, live the Jefferson life. Not really. They've had conversations about getting rid of township government. Yeah. And I think that would be really sad because I, I think townships, you know, in Minnesota, they adopt a budget at an annual meeting of every township resident. You can come up and everybody's got an equal vote on the budget. And I've seen things where they, you know, it's, it's a very like earthy, democratic type of process. And I, I really like it. I like subsidiarity, the idea that we should have lots of government but they should do the thing they're competent at and no higher and no lower, <laughs> you know? And so township governments are a great place to resolve a lot of conflicts that often, without townships, wind up at city hall or at a county government. If you uh, heard some of uh, uh, Jonathan Rose's uh, remarks and... Uh, I've been out here doing this, oh, so I oh, missed okay. a lot of the... Well, he makes uh, uh, the uh, common... Uh, uh, projection about population growth and the percentage of people that will be living in cities yeah. in the next th three, four decades. Um, does that mean that the new urbanists are going to be, and particularly engineers, involved yeah. in uh, trying to find space for uh, electric skateboards in <laughs> cities? I don't know. That would be fun, wouldn't it? We, we in Brainerd have this skate park that was this, like, source of controversy because right. they built it and then kids would show up and you know like what did you think would happen <laughs> and there's nothing else for them to do around it so it's an isolated place so all of a sudden it's got some graffiti oh sure it's got some you know seedy elements going on and instead of like attacking the issue which would really be why don't we integrate this more into the neighborhood why don't we trim up some of these trees get some better sight lines in here get more foot traffic at all hours of the day. What do they do? First, they gated it off 
and this had hours when it would be open. Of course, people just cut the gates and we, you know, whatever. Sure. And then what do they do? They took it out. They got rid of it. And and to me, I, I feel like that's the that's the wrong reaction. If people are saying we want to be like this is what we want, we got to figure out a way to to make those kind of things happen, right? Yeah. Yeah. What What do you uh, What do you think would be the land use model? Yeah. Uh, today, if in June of 1956, the Eisenhower administration had passed the Interstate Rail Act. Oh, wow. Um, that's really interesting. Um, Public dis- yeah. decision. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not a lot of discussion of design or planning or right. the consequences of land use. Right. It's uh, fascinating because I, I look back at the map of like my home state of Minnesota from the early 1900s, the, the rail maps. And the rail map is, like, the state is saturated with rail lines. It's, right. it's fascinating. Like, you had rail lines, little spurs going all over the place. Right. And, I mean, they might have been, you know, lines that would have run twice a week or three times a week uh, at odd hours or what have you. But, but there was, you know, you could get almost anywhere in Minnesota and really in most states by rail in the early 1900s. What if instead of... An Interstate Highway Act, we had said we are going to build high-speed rail, like uninterrupted, open road kind of rail um, between cities. I, I, wow, that that would have been, we wouldn't be here in Detroit today in this. Well, one intriguing uh, aspect of that is the fact that the federal government didn't, uh, uh, by prescription in endorsing that legislation, put access restrictions. Right. You can't access it with a curb cut for a private property. However, on the state level and yeah. county level, when you get down to those levels of government and even township, right. it turns into more of a kind of libertarian, it's my property, why shouldn't I have access to the transportation infrastructure? Mm-hmm. It, it, it's almost the, a perverse... In a way, it's libertarian, but in a way, it's not because what we're it, it would be very libertarian if they weren't communally built. Right, right. <laughs> right? it's a public infrastructure. Right. So what we do is we take uh, communal funds from everyone, we build a state or or regional you know roadway, and then we allow the wealth from that to flow to a very small number of property owners who can have curb cuts and accesses along it. And, you know, from, from a local government standpoint, this is like a great deal because the federal government paid 90% of this roadway and we get all this new tax base and these property owners will, you know, be happy with us. So what the heck? Let's do it. Well, and that's a real, real perverse incentive. Well, what would you say to a uh, suggestion that there should be legislation to protect citizen welfare from the... Uh, unintended negative consequences of scale. You're getting into the, like the Nassim Taleb territory, and I, I I like it. In the book I wrote about transportation funding, I talked about the 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 access issue, and really the asymmetry of cost benefit. Because if you're the Walmart and you can locate there, you get a huge benefit. But if my drive is slowed by 10 seconds, I have a small cost. And so for me as an individual, it doesn't make sense to go to the city and fight for that little bit of cost because I'll spend more 
of that time sitting in a useless meeting. But if you aggregate that cost over everybody on the road, it's way more than the gain of Walmart. So what we've done is we've created this system where there's lots of small losers and very few large winners. My way of dealing with that is we can calculate that. We can build that cost in. Let's have an access tax. So your access tax would be essentially the number of vehicles that you're accessing, uh, you know, how, how much traffic are you generating, and how much traffic are you slowing down. And so if you are a farmer out on a road with 280T, your access tax may be $25 a year because you're accessing it at a very low rate and you're not slowing anyone down. But if you want to be the Walmart on the interstate, well, your tax might be 20 million a year because you're, and we have these calculations. I mean, we use these calculations to justify projects all the time. We can say, okay, you're going to slow down 40,000 cars a day by 15 seconds each, 15 seconds by 40, by $25 an hour, by 365 days a year. You know, we could do this math and see like, here's how much this is going to cost. That's your tax for this access. And if we did that, I think what we would do is we would be fixing that asymmetry of cost and benefit and bringing it more into line. It's a fantasy proposition because no politician would bring it forward, but I, I cite it as a way to think through that process because, you know, we don't feel injured by it, but we should. Thank you very much yeah. for your work. Thank John. you. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Nice to see you. John. Hey, Chuck. Hey, man. How are you? I'm I'm doing fine. I've got a I've got a debate to host in what three hours. So I'm nice. I'm getting uh, nice. <laughs> I'll have a softball one for you then. Oh, okay, go cool. for it. Um, you, you, what what's my favorite kind of Mountain Dew? <laughs> exactly. What is your favorite kind of Mountain Dew now? I have to say that I'm I really like the new Grape Kickstart. Right. It is ridiculously good. The, the problem is, is that I've been on, I've been, I drink diet Mountain Dew most of the time. Right, right. And the Kickstart is decidedly not diet. Gotcha. It's the high fructose corn syrup right. and all that. Right. I do those like every now. That's like right. my treat. Right. There you go. I do those every now and then. Um, everything in moderation, Chuck. Everything in moderation. <laughs> this would be my second favorite. Then the energizing strawberry kiwi with mm -hmm. just the right amount of kick. Got it. Um, it's funny. You'll get a kick out of this. They yeah. call it the Kickstart Hydrating Boost. Right. <laughs> of course. Uh, so it's those all, are my. It's all in the marketing. Those are my two favorite. Yeah. The, I'm, I want to get hydrated, so I'm going to drink yeah. this uh, Kickstart. So my question for you is: Is yeah. this is uh, my fifth uh, uh, CNU Congress, yeah. Yeah. and uh, West Palm Beach was my first, and that was the first time I was had yep. the opportunity to meet you in person. Yeah, I was there with um, my uh, corduroy. Yes. <laughs> Yes. That was one of the funniest moments ever in retrospect. Yes. Because, uh, you know, I didn't, I had one sport coat and I knew yep. that everybody at CNU wore sport coats or dressed nice. And so I yeah. better wear mine. You better wear yours. It never occurred to me that corduroy <laughs> in Florida in, you know, June. Would, uh, right. Yeah. Would, you would be strange. Right. Probably not the best uh, strategy. <laughs> So my question is, um, and obviously you know, Strong Towns uh, had been going on you know, prior to uh, the CNU in uh, West Palm Beach, Florida, um, but how would you say the, the Strong Towns message and the Strong Towns movement um, has evolved over the oh, years? Oh, wow. Yeah. There's a couple dimensions, and I'll give you the ones that I'm actually most proud of. 
I think the, the main way that we have evolved is that it's gone beyond me. There's other people now who are taking ownership of it, who actually are taking things and, uh, you know, expanding on them and doing something with them and taking them in different directions, directions that are beyond my, you know, knowledge base, my experience. So, you know, we have, Rachel has done a, a, a fantastic job of bringing to light issues uh, involving, you know, women, transit, uh, all these areas that I'm, I'm fascinated to learn more about. I'm fascinated to listen and learn, but I can't speak from experience. There's other times when our message has been kind of taken by people and, and they'll apply it in ways and take ownership of it. And, and that evolution to me, it's like a third generation kind of evolution. The first generation is me and, and my ideas, you know, in my head. And the second generation is people interacting with my ideas. But the third generation, the exciting places, people taking those ideas as a starting point of a conversation that has now gotten larger than, than me. Intellectually, for, for me, a lot of this started with, and I had someone write me last week. He said, I'm, I'm a member, but I'm not renewing my membership. And I want to tell you why. It's because you guys used to do just financial analysis and now you do all these other things and I don't care about any of them. And I just wish you'd just get back to doing financial analysis. And there's a part of me that's like, okay, <laughs> thank you. I, I wrote him a nice thing back and I'm like, yes, I get it. Like, I, I understand. If you just want that, there's places you can go for that. You know, remember I was writing three days a week back then and they weren't all financial analyses. You probably are still getting them at the same rate, but you're just getting all this other stuff now too. He's a do the math only. He's a do the math only kind of person. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. You know, some of those things are like necessary things. Like, like we did the thing on the iron range and I went back and did a bunch of Taco John's analysis and different things that were kind of like strong towns 101. But I heard Andre say a couple years ago, like he's done doing the new urbanism 101 presentation. Because he did that 20 years ago, and, and now it's like beyond that. And I feel like this has always been a journey for me of asking more mature questions. And I feel like, uh, I, I feel almost embarrassed sometimes of this, the questions I was asking <laughs> in 2009 and 2010, because today they look, they look immature. They look, you know, undeveloped in infant stage. And that's a good thing because the whole dialogue has evolved. Um, but for me, I like the fact that I'm interested in new aspects of this conversation. And I'll, I'll give you a very personal example. Last year with the, the Syrian refugee thing, I'm not going to say like it deeply impacted me, but it, it did. It, it, it affected me. Like I, that was something that I like on a very personal level, cared about. And I wrote about it a little bit, but it's not really like in the wheelhouse of strong towns. But yet we talked about it and there was a, a dialogue back and forth. And a, a, about a month later, I published my recommended reading list for the year. This, these, are the, these are all the, you know, here's the like 82 books or whatever I, I, I went through last year. And here's like the five that I found the most valuable and recommended. And for the first time, I had multiple people write me saying, I am part of your audience. I am a woman. I am an African-American. I, you know, come from w whatever place. And I'm disappointed that your reading list, while, you know, expansive, is very narrow. My response was, 
initially was, well, I, you know, I read the things that like captivate me at the moment. And these are the things that like really move me. But then I, I said, well, okay, hang on a sec. I'm interested in this dialogue. I'm interested in like, we put together a reading list for me. And I had people email me, you, you should read, you know, a, a whole collection of books that I never, never would have gone on my reading list. Right. And so, um, I have been delving into areas that I find fascinating, but know nothing about. Um, I've read a ton of behavioral psychology this year. Right. Like, where did that come from? I've, I've read a lot of... Um, you're trying to d- start a movement. Right. <laughs> you no, are, totally. You're, you're, like, you're leading a movement. That's exactly. So, like, yeah. what am I doing? I better yeah. know some of this stuff. Yeah. Um, I've read uh, about brain, like, therapy. And, and, like, this is just mind-blowing stuff. And then I, I have a, a bunch of books on... I guess the, the only way I can categorize it is the African-American experience written from an African-American perspective. Mm-hmm. And I have to admit, I mean, I, I will stand here today and admit to you that I find these very challenging. They're not natural reads for me. They're not things that um, intuitively make sense to me or that I, I really know how to respond to. But I, I, I think that we're at a point in this movement where I, to grow as a person, have to listen and, and understand things that maybe are outside of my, like, the next extension of evolution of our dialogue is beyond me. <laughs> right, right. Right? Yeah. And, and if, if I'm going to, you know, as kind of a leader of this, bring us to the, to the next stage, I'm bringing us into a place where I'm ignorant and unknown, and I, I can't be. Right. Yeah. And... and- and I know that uh, you'll, you'll have some listeners out there that haven't necessarily looked at your reading list, and they may probably have not actually seen the stack of books on your desk in yeah. Brainerd <laughs> that you have no intention of ever opening and reading because right. you get sent books all the all time. The time. People yeah. are telling, you know, asking for your 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 comments and yeah. give some feedback. Um, I used to give go- books as gifts. Right. Because I, I thought, you know, I love this book. What a beautiful thing. I will mm-hmm. give it to you. Right. And I, I get so many books as gifts and I, I love it. It's very nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I had this Minnesota guilt thing for a long time. Like if you give me a book as a gift. Right. I feel this obligation to read it mm-hmm. and I really don't want to read it. I have these other books that, that I want to yeah. read right now. Right. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, keep sending me books. I love them. Yeah. I'm, 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 I'm the Emilda Marcos of, of book collection, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, what she was to shoes. I am to books. Just keep sending them. But yeah, yeah, th- there's only so many, yeah. you know, only so many you can get through. Well, and, and, and you mentioned a book today in your, um, uh, interview with, uh, Jeanette Sadat Khan, Street Fight. Yeah, and, Street Fight, uh, yep. That's awesome that, uh, you know, yeah. you di- dove into that particular book. It, I have to admit, it's sitting on my nightstand. Oh, really? So I have to get to it, yeah. Oh, I, um, there's reading and then there's reading. Mm-hmm. Like, I read the Tomas Sedlacek, mm-hmm. The Economics of Good and Evil, mm-hmm. which he wrote in Czech and then was translated into English. Mm-hmm. Um, that book took me three weeks to read. Mm-hmm. It was on my Kindle, you know, like... 800 pages or something. I mean, it was, right. it was a big book, but it should not have taken, you know, Jeanette's book took me like three hours. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a, yeah. it's a nice, it's a, it's a good book. It's well written. It's thick, right. but you can get through it. Yeah. It's, 
you know, native in English and it's meant to be read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so go yeah. for it. It's, it's, a, it's no, actually... It's, in, it's sitting there and I'll, I'll dive into it. But yeah. you know what I mean. It, oh, it's, totally. We're, we're, yeah. we're doing this type of work all the time and especially right. what, with what I'm doing with Active Towns. It's, it's totally. so close to what I'm doing in terms of work. Well, and so. tell me this. People say like, what, mm-hmm. what planning books have you read this year? Mm-hmm. And I say, well, none. Right. <laughs> like, I don't... Do you read books about bikes? Not, not very really, often. right? Yeah, yeah. And, and it's not that they're not interesting. Yeah. But the the thing that expands your mind, like yeah. the the thing that I'm lacking in my brain, yeah. is not an understanding of zoning policy. Right. If I read a good book on zoning policy, I might, you know, for uh, uh, you know, ten units of effort, get back mm-hmm. half a unit of knowledge, and that knowledge may be really right. useful. Yeah. But if I spend ten units of effort on something else, I'm going to get back right. forty units of knowledge. Yeah. So, like, let me do that one instead. Yeah, I mean, you know, my reading list over the past year has been, you know, really focused on where I'm trying to take the the Active Towns initiative, and yeah. so focused on storytelling and you know, learning how to become a filmmaker and, and things of that nature. How's so, that going? It's pretty cool. It's fun. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's. It's, it's neat, you know, learning a whole new it's kind suite of, freaky of skills, though, isn't it? It is. It's yeah. it's freaky, but you know, I'm, you know, just like you're turning these podcasts around and getting them back out. You know, yeah. we did our morning run this morning. I've already gone back, taken the footage that uh, Victor Dover took, that I took, nice. processed the video and put put it back out. Po- you know, posted it to our Vimeo page. Yeah, and I did the same thing with yesterday's uh, run and did the same thing with uh, our ride that we did on Tuesday. So it's fun to be challenged in that way and. It's neat because it's also artistic too. Because right. then you're like, "Ooh, I should have had this type of, you know, camera shot." Right. And because you, it needs to be entertaining. Otherwise, nobody's going to totally. watch it. That's that's kind of the fun. I realize like the the, the things that I like to do with Strong Towns. I mean, I've been doing a lot of like the bookkeeping, uh, you know, looking over the books, putting together budgets, uh, you know, setting up this process, and it, it's mm. a lot of that just like sucks the life out of me. Yeah. The part I like is this artistic part. And right. I, I realized that as an engineer, as a planner, the thing that maybe pushed me in this direction was mm. the, the, the drummer that I was, you right. know, back yeah. in high yeah, school. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. that, I was going to yeah. be a musician and yeah. I, I maybe should have followed that path and I'd be doing something completely different now. But it's the, it's the creative part that I think it, it, it's, it's what makes me get up in the morning, uh, like, okay. I don't know enough about what I'm doing. Right. Let's go out and try some things and, and see what works. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's great that you've got, you know, a, a rock star team, you know, oh surrounding gosh. you now. Yeah. And Michelle helping out with the, some of the scheduling and that yeah. sort of thing. So that's, it frees up time for you to, you know, exercise that creative side. We had this thing we were talking about a, a while back where you develop something with an audience of 100,000 people. It's a higher stake thing than an audience of 10,000 people. And the demands are, are higher. But now you have an audience of a million people, you, 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 the stakes are even higher. And, you know, you see these bands who put out like a great album because they worked on it for eight years on the road and it gelled. Mm-hmm. And right. then they put them in the studio for six months for the next album and it's not nearly as good and the, right. their, their moment is done. Yeah. And I, I think we had this recognition early on that we couldn't be that. There was not going to be another curbside chat mm-hmm. that would just like drop down and be as good as the last one. Mm-hmm. We had to work it. We had to emerge. It had to be incremental. It had to be messy. And I, I think the great thing about our, especially our core membership, is that they're active, they're engaged, 
they give me feedback. If I, if I maybe could say a, a positive thing about myself, I think I'm an approachable enough person to other people where when like my fly is open, people will tell me, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, right. Uh, and, and, and people feel like because of the way we've structured this whole conversation, mm-hmm. people almost feel like they have to tell me because they're part of the success of what we're doing. Right. It has given me a lot of courage to step into the unknown mm-hmm. in a way that I, I don't know as I had two years ago. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. 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 It's like, it's like, I feel there's a, there's a net there of all these people to, to catch me. Right. And so let's just jump. Right. right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's beautiful. Let's go get ready for the debate and have a fun time. Yay. CNU, uh, 24 in Detroit. Will, it's nice to see you, man. Thanks everybody. Keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Take care. We need your help. If you think the strong towns message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of strong towns at strongtowns.org. Drastic times require what? Drastic answers, yes! Who said that? They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made the city? I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Yeah.